would you, uh, would you, I, it's redundant, but would you pray with me uh, as, as we get going? I just uh, feel, feel the need to pray over top of us once more. Uh, Father, thank you for this night. God, thank you for each person that's here, uh, each of us bringing different things with us, uh, good weeks, bad weeks, uh, all different kinds of baggage, uh, maybe we're tired um, or frustrated about something, and yet uh, in your sovereignty and your goodness, you've got each one of us here right now uh, in this space for a reason, and uh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would uh, rend the heavens and come down and be present, that... Uh, that you would change us, that you would shape us and mold us and reveal yourself, and that as we leave, we'll know a little bit more about you, we'll see you a little bit more clearly, um, and we'll want to be with you a little bit more. Uh, we believe that you can do that even through uh, a church like Scum and a preacher like me. And so, God, we ask that you'll do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. <clears throat> uh, many of you know me, uh, so hello once again. Uh, the, the book of Haggai, which is where we're going to camp out for a few minutes in a little bit, uh, is one I've actually been wrestling with now for f a few years. It's only two chapters long. Uh, it's, there's uh, not a whole lot of words there, and yet there's lots uh, that's worth wrestling with. And, and in fact, my wrestling with this particular book started with somebody at Scum. I'm not going to mention any names, uh, but, uh, but I was talking to somebody several years ago from Scum, and uh, they mentioned that they saw some similarities between Haggai's ministry and my own at, at the uh, other church that I work at. And so I'm excited now, several years later, uh, to, to, to see some of that uh, planted back into scum. And, and everything that, the way that I landed at this sermon and these ideas uh, are all birthed out of this new year thing. And I'm not going to reference that a whole lot. I'm not, uh, it's not meant to be that kitschy. But... But we did just start a new year, and this is the first uh, Lord's Gathering on a Sunday of 2020. And, and so I know for me, one of the things that I need as I end a year and begin a new one uh, is I need to re be reminded of proper framing, uh, because we will we'll put a whole bunch of different kind of rhetoric into a new year. And so uh, uh, that's, that's where this is coming from, uh, all this stuff, is, is I want us to have proper framing as we enter 2020. Uh, and to get there, I want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about airplanes. Because airplanes as a piece of technology have only existed for a little bit over 100 years now, uh, which means all through human history, every single human being, uh, billions and billions of them all throughout history, had no experience of airplanes or what they could do or what they were uh, conceptually. They're, they're really brand new. And, and the reality is that airplanes have changed our lives immeasurably. And, and for somebody like me, who's, who's not that old, I only remember having airplanes, right? I, as a baby, I was in planes, flying with my parents around the country to visit people. Uh, so that's, that's all I know. But, but Airplanes have changed human experience significantly. For example, crossing, traveling, land and sea uh, was previously doable, but much more time-consuming and much more costly and, and much more laborious and often unsafe traveling that far over great distances. Uh, airplanes connected the world in a way that was previously unimaginable to the average people. So if we'd been alive even 150 years ago, the idea that tomorrow I could be in Europe or Asia would, would have been 
asinine. It would have been ridiculous. Uh, so it's, it's changed everyone all the way down to uh, normal people like you and me. And so I want you to imagine with me for a minute uh, imagine you're getting onto an airplane, and many of us do this around the holidays. In fact, over the next two weeks, I'll be flying several different places, several different states. Um, and so uh, imagine with me for a minute that you're getting onto an airplane. Imagine your traveling process. Maybe you're super stressed or not. I'm not. I like it. Uh, but maybe you don't like it. But imagine that whole process. You're going through it. You've got to go through security and get on a plane. Uh, and in my estimation, if you're lucky, you've got a window seat. That's my favorite seat on the plane, uh, is, is the window seat, for various reasons. Um, for some people, the aisle seat's more practical because of the need to go to the bathroom. Um, I've met some weirdos who like the middle seat. Uh, those are extreme extroverts. Uh, and and I, I like the window seat. Um, and so imagine you're getting into the window seat, and, and you take off. What is it, assuming it's not a red eye... What is it you do almost universally at the beginning of the flight and at the end of the flight in the window seat? <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, you look out the window. Thank you for the obvious answer. I appreciate the spiritual answer. Uh, you look out the window. That's what I do at least. <laughs> yes, at the guy on the wing. Uh, you look out the window because you can see the city that you're leaving and you can see uh, the city you're arriving in really pretty well. And the fact of the matter is, the ability to do that is really significant. Because you can see landscape, and you can see really different cultures of people from over top. You can, you can view them across space and time. You can see them. So if you're flying west, you get to see the mountains from above, which is, again, historically unprecedented. Um, if you're flying all the way to California, you can see the beach as you are landing. And the reverse is true if you head east. You can see mostly flat uh, and, and occasional cities. But that whole idea of looking out of a window in an airplane and viewing the world has a reasonably well-known phrase that's attached to it. Maybe you've heard it. And it's called the 30,000-foot view. Uh, the 30,000-foot view. Um, and it's this idea uh, that, that life and places look different from way above. They, uh, they, they make you realize, so the world's not really as big as it seems when you're on the ground, and yet I'm tiny. That's sort of the framing that you get. You get this big picture view uh, of the world. And, and that philosophically can, can and should, I think, change us at least a little bit the ability to see that big and that vast. And tonight, uh, I want to spend a few minutes uh, describing or taking something called, that we're going to call the 10,000-year view. Same, same basic principle where this 30,000-foot view, you can see a bunch of space, you can see a bunch of people really living their lives. The 10,000-year view removes us from this moment right now and allows us to see more fully around it. Because if you don't take that 10,000-year view, some of the things I'm about to say may be, it may be offensive, I don't know. But, but with the 10,000-year view, all of it falls into place and all of it makes sense. Um, and if we're being honest, it's a difficult thing to do, but that's what I'm going to ask of you. Uh, it's difficult for us to even think historically, but, but at least that's concrete to think bigger, further than that is almost impossible. But it's what I'm asking. So, uh, to get into our text, which we're going to do in just a minute, 
Uh, I've got to give you a little bit of context, otherwise Haggai doesn't feel like it makes a lot of sense. So here's just a little bit of history so that where I pick it up makes sense. All right? First part. In the year 538 B.C., there was a king. His name was Cyrus. He was the king of Persia. Persia basically conquered the whole known world at the time. And this king said to the conquered Israelites, hey, you can go home. You can redo your life back in Israel. You can, go, you, can, you can go rebuild your temple. You can go worship. You can go do the things that you want to do. And sure enough, the many Israelites packed up. Uh, they went back to Jerusalem and started to work on their temple. But with all good things, there was opposition. And so they quit. They're like, okay, that's too hard. We're going to stop. Fast forward uh, several years, 18 years in fact, new king, his name is Darius, and he says, no, 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 pick back up, go do it. Go rebuild your temple, go do your life the way that you mean to do it as long as you're not, um, as long as you're not causing any issues for the rest of us. And the leaders at the time in Israel were a governor named Zerubbabel and a priest uh, named Joshua. Those are the two kind of big wigs in the area. And when we pick it up, we're about to pick it up here, uh, where we pick it up the year is uh, 520. The date is August 29th. That's how specific they can get it down to based on the information in the text. August 29th, 520. And the people no longer feel like their highest priority is building the temple. They've arrived back home, and they've got so many other things to do there's, they're trying to rebuild their life. They're trying to make sure they have enough food. They're trying to build houses. They're trying to make all this stuff happen. And in the midst of this group of people, back in their home, attempting to build a new life, God sends a gentleman named Haggai, who was un, relatively unknown. We have no information about him other than that God sends him. So he's just a random guy that God raises up and says, hey, I need you to go communicate something to my people. Right? These people who are back home building. Okay? That's the historical context. We're going to pick it up. We're in Haggai chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 3 through 11. Here's what it is. It says this, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, while this house, meaning the temple, lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on, the, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Okay. We're going to analyze this uh, message to the Israel, Israelites, and I think it has a ton, uh, honestly, I think it has a ton of relevance for us uh, today. 
And we're going to break it down uh, into three separate parts, uh, just based on what's going on in the text, all right? So God raises this previously unknown guy named Haggai to communicate a message to his people. You've got a group of people just living their lives. They're doing the best that they know how to do. They're living normally. They're trying to build a good life. And the message that God sends them, if you are paying attention, is really clear. The message is, what are you doing? What are you doing? Think. You guys are missing the point. You're missing the main point. You've got good things. But you're focused on them exclusively. It's a really profoundly simple idea, uh, but it dives right to our heart. And he gives it to us clearly. He says, what are you doing? You're missing the point. What is the main point? That's in verse 8 in this text. God tells them through Haggai, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Okay. This idea of building the temple is really, really significant Not so much for us, right? Today, we don't need this space to worship and be with God. But for uh, the Israelites, this idea is far more significant than we can easily understand. And it breaks down. You see part of it here explicitly and part of it implicitly. The explicit part is that if they build this temple, if they build God's house, what will it do? It will bring glory to God. He tells them that. He says, if you build my house, it will bring me pleasure and it will bring me glory. And this is no small thing because remember the history I just gave you. The Israelites are a conquered, inconsequential, nobody cares about them people group at this point. They've been uh, exiled. They've been cast into slavery throughout history. Nobody cares. And God is saying, hey, if you build this house, it's going to point to me. There's going to be an opportunity for you to make a name for me in the world again if you build this house. Now before that, of course, they could live faithfully in the midst of that domination. But this is a new way to communicate to the world. Our God is good and he's faithful and he's loving and he is with us. That's the first thing. That's the explicit thing. But there's an implicit thing going on here too. Remember, as I said, this is before Jesus. This is before we were the the curtain was torn and we were given His Spirit and we could all be in active presence relationship with Him at all times. So the temple wasn't just a place where God's name could be magnified. It was also a way for God to enjoy His relationship with His children. He met them there. He met them in the temple. So in addition to being able to communicate his goodness, this activity building the temple would enable them to engage with God in a fresh and healthy way in relationship. So essentially, what God is doing, he sends this no-name, this guy that nobody really knows very well, he's got no significant family history, God sends him and tells his people, hey, go back to the basics. Go back to what you're made for, which is to bring me glory and to be in relationship with me. 
go back to that. And if you're familiar, I won't spend a lot of time on this, uh, but this is why there's a famous, there's lots of famous uh, creeds and such, but there's a very famous um, catechism called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and the most famous question in it is the first one. And that question is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, why does man exist? What is his slash her purpose? And the answer is really uh, simple, and it's this. Man's chief end, his purpose, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's at the heart of what's going on here in Haggai. The message he sends through that prophet was to get back to the basics of why they were created in the first place. And here's the deal. The longer I work in church, and it's been a while now, uh, the longer I work in church and the more I encounter other churches, the more convinced I am that this is the fundamental problem so many churches face. We miss the point. We miss the point. As a matter of fact, uh, I'll give you a concrete example. Uh, A couple of years ago now, uh, I'm nearly finished in God's providence. I'm nearly finished with seminary. Earlier in my seminary education, um, I went to a luncheon uh, with a whole bunch of students, a few more than are in here right now, a whole bunch of students and and an ultra-famous pastor uh, in America, one of the most well-known pastors in all of America. Um, and, and, And I'll be honest with you, I went into it kind of moody because I'm not that pastor's biggest fan. Uh, for a host of reasons, and, and so I went into it kind of angsty, not sure if I should be there, but it turns out that pastor was the least of my concerns when I got there, because I realized there were dozens and dozens of future ministry leaders, roughly my age, all sitting there, hanging on every word uh, of this guy, and all of their questions were about strategy and practical things and, uh, and, and his, his general ideas on ministry. But there was nothing about the basics. Nothing anywhere in the conversation about bringing glory to Jesus. Nothing about worshiping him. Nothing about actively being in relationship with him. And in Haggai's story... Both, so this is a no-name guy, he's of no real consequence, both the most significant political leader and the most significant spiritual leader, the governor and the priest that I mentioned, they were missing the point. They were doing life with everyone else. It took God raising up somebody new. So it shouldn't surprise us that in our politics um, or in our churches that often we'll still miss it. That we'll, we'll, gla- we'll get, have glancing blows, we'll get near it, but we'll miss it. Um, and, and to be honest, I think, I, th- I know my church has this issue, and I know scum well enough to, to know that it can happen here. And so, if you hear nothing else, hear this next sentence. If you slash we get Jesus, and you get nothing else, then you have Everything. And if you get everything in the world that you could ever want and you miss Jesus, then you have nothing. That's the principal point here in Haggai. It's the principal point uh, all throughout Scripture, and it's the principal point of our lives. The only thing that matters 
for me, for you, for our church, are God's presence and his glory in Christ. Our relationship with him and our worshiping and making him known. That's it. Nothing else matters in the long run. And so uh, let's swing it away uh, from individuals to something a little bit more corporate. Many, uh, if you know me, if you've heard me preach before, you've almost certainly heard me say something like this. Um, I, I hope this doesn't shock you. It shouldn't. I know it's true for other people in here. I don't really like church. I preach a lot. <laughs> but I don't really like church very much. I am eternally convinced, I have been since I was a kid, I just didn't know it, I am eternally convinced that the secondary benefits of church are not worth it. Just just totally, completely convinced. Um, I love the community that happens here at SCUM. It's actually uh, deeper and more profound than most other churches I've been to. But I think I could find good community in some sense outside of here. Right, I love all of the people, all of the worship leaders that are here. I, I personally love and I love how they play, but I like other kinds of music. I can find good music elsewhere. I love the attempts to serve that exist out of scum, but I can find other attempts to serve the community elsewhere. The secondary things that churches offer that are very good things rooted in God himself, those secondary things aren't worth it. What makes church worth it, what makes this gathering worth it, is Jesus. And that is it. Encountering him and bringing him glory, that's it for me. And uh, we read it, I, I could read the whole thing again, but I'll just read the last few verses out of Isaiah 53 again. Hear this in that light. Hear these words about Jesus in light of the fact that he's the only reason that we should even show up here. Here's what it says. Yet it's the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I'll give him a portion among the great, and he'll divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Do you see it? That text, this gathering, the Bible itself is about Jesus. It's about the sacrifice, his sacrifice and who he is to bring people to himself. All right, God himself came down to live the life we were supposed to, died the death that we deserved instead so that he could give us real life, true life, full life. And that's his reward. His reward is us. He wants us. And that's my heartbeat for this church. My heartbeat for all churches, but in particular tonight, that's my heartbeat for this church, for each one of you, is that we would see him, know him, follow him. And uh, if we receive just that idea from all of this stuff, then we're 
beginning to understand what it looks like for us to live faithfully today in America, in Denver, in 2020. If we get that framing, those right priorities, then we're going to have a good year. It's, it's inevitable. It's not to say you'll be, have all these blessings. It's not to say you'll uh, be successful. But it is to say that you'll be living as you were designed with Jesus at the center of all of who you are. But, that's often not what happens. And that's not what happens for at least a while with the Israelites. Right? You see, instead of that, verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Okay. As finite beings, we have a profound and powerful tendency to focus on ourselves, our stories, our people, our problems, and often we will then miss the forest for the trees. And it was true for the people of Israel. They returned from exile, uh, which had been relatively recent still. They'd been captured and dominated, and so they're trying to build good lives for themselves. And who could fault them for that? They want to put food on the table and have good relationships. They want good things for their lives. And the same is true for us today, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. We want good things. We want to deal with our debt. We want to have romantic relationships and families. We want to have a home where we feel safe and can pursue our dreams. We want the same things that humans have always basically wanted. The same things the Israelites basically wanted. The problem, though, is that those things are not what we were designed for in and of themselves. We were designed to glorify God and to enjoy Him. So our priorities being on the wrong things will inevitably lead to failure and brokenness. Inevitably. And often it's God's grace to us that they do. So if you're hyper-focused exclusively, your heart is woven and, and around the state of your family, you'll find often your family will be a mess. Or if it's woven around your ambitions, you'll find that you're often failing. And that's God being faithful, saying, no, 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 that's not where fulfillment is. That's not how you're designed. That's not what's best for you. And you see it in the text. That's what they do. And God in his love doesn't let those things work. Those things in your life that you're focusing on won't last. The bad things are only temporal. The good things will run out. Those things that consume your thoughts will go away, but God will still be there, and that's the point. Jesus is the only thing in your life that is constant. And if you're like me at all, and you're willing to be honest, this should sting at least a little bit. Because this story of God's people wanting good things that get in the way of the ultimate thing is a strong critique, a strong repudiation of our culture and the way we live. We want, all we think about is the comfortable life that we're trying to get to. Or all, the, all we think about is wanting a secure, safe situation for our country or our family. Or all we want is recognition for our gifts and our talents. Or we want romance. Or we want sex. Or we want all these good things 
but things that aren't worth living for. And this uh, idea is something that, that we as a church need to constantly be asking ourselves as well, together. For example, what percentage of our thoughts and ministries here at SCUM, and I'm not involved in designing ministry here, so this is more a question for you and a question I ask for our church, what percentage of those things can we honestly say are primarily about Jesus and not one of the secondary benefits of church life? Right? Is that party or that uh, concept about Jesus or something else? Is the way we do our worship service together about Jesus or something else? Going into this next year, these are the kinds of questions we need to have answers to or at least be pursuing answers to. And if you're curious to know about the future of SCUM or you're concerned about it, these are the questions to start by asking yourself. And so I'm going to ask you, all of you, as a deep friend and a person who loves SCUM very much, what are the things in your life right now, this moment, that are receiving your heart's focus that 10,000 years from now just won't matter? And that's where that focus comes into play. 10,000 years from now, what are the things that scum will still be glad that she was doing? In your life, 10,000 years from now, what are the things that you will still remember and still be worshiping God over? Pour your energy and your life into those things. So I want to propose that we get back to the basics as a church. That our all-consuming heart is for Jesus alone, encountering him and glorifying him. And this, uh, there's one, this leads us into the third thing, which is how do we actually go about adjusting that? So I recognize, uh, speaking for myself, I, I regularly recognize, okay, I see what Scripture says the right priority is. I see that my priority, my heart, is elsewhere. How do I get myself back on track? And that's fortunately also in this text. All right, so we're going to read a couple of things. Uh, verses 7 and 8. It says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Okay. Verse 7 is really where this starts. First, it starts with the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts. It's describing God in all of his fullness as a big authoritative leader. Thus says the Lord of hosts. He's telling us. Hey, he's revealing to us. So the first way we get back on track is by engaging with God's revelation. For us, that's scripture. For them, it was the words of the prophet Haggai. For us, it's the words of the prophet Haggai in Scripture. We find God's voice. I'm off track. I know what Scripture says. I'm off track. Okay, what does God say? What is he telling me? Where do I find what I should be doing as opposed to what I am doing? And the answer is Scripture. It's revelation. It's, it's seeing God's word. And then, I cut it off one verse early on purpose. The text probably should go through verse 12. Because after, God says, consider your ways. That's what I want you to do. Consider them. 
Look, look inward what happens. Verse 12. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, that's the governor, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, that's the high priest, with all the rest of the people, obeyed the Lord their God. And the people feared him. Right? So consider your ways and respond. Consider your ways and respond. God reveals and we respond. And so what it looks like then ultimately is the same as the moment you got saved. Is the same thing that it looks like now, days later, years later. Receive God's revealing and respond to it. Turn from that. Turn from my wrong priorities. Allow him to change me. Allow him to adjust my gaze. And that's what the people of Israel do. They see, okay, our priorities have been wrong. You're calling us back into relationship, back into glorifying you. That's what we're going to do. And they rebuild the temple and they get a fresh encountering of God's presence and ultimately his glory and their joy. That's what happens. And that's what we want here, I think. That's what scum wants here is, is God's presence and to see him at work and to see him saving people and changing people and seeing the gospel go forth on into Denver. And this is what it looks like. It looks like every person in this room considering you, your heart, where is it? Considering that, seeing God's word, seeing what he calls you to, that it's better and turning and following in that direction. That's the start, or I guess the restart, or the ongoing work of God using scum for his glory. So, I'll just, I'll wrap it up there. We've got this picture in the book of Haggai of right priorities, which is Jesus himself. Wrong priorities, which is where we tend to get wrapped up into other things, good things, that aren't Jesus. But we see the trajectory back. Consider your ways. Follow him. That's what I, I think that's ultimately uh, what 2020 can be. And that's what I hope and pray uh, that I'm asking myself, and I have been certainly for the last week at least, uh, what is this year going to look like? What's the framing going to be? And, and I hope you'll ask that of yourself and of this church. Where is, the, where is your heart? Allow God to change it. Consider your ways and respond. All right? Um, and I'll pray for us, and we're going to take communion, uh, so I'll introduce that here in a second. Uh, Father, thank you once again. Thank you uh, that you can grant us a 10,000-year perspective. You can reveal to our hearts where we're focusing, where our priorities are out of, want, out, of, out of line. And I ask that you'll do that now, Jesus, that, that, that you'll make it clear to us, hey, what is my heart trending toward that isn't you? Because in 10,000 years, that stuff won't matter at all. And so invite us into that eternal perspective now. To have our heart and our priorities right in the here and now grant us a 10,000 year perspective because we won't, if it's about you, we'll never regret it. 
Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you gave yourself for us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.